0: Well, we're picking up right where we left off in Mark with 14, 27 through 52. If you remember from last week, Jesus had served the Passover meal. He had instituted the Lord's Supper. They sung a hymn together all before leaving for the Mount of Olives. Judas had left prior. He had left earlier. He'd gathered the priests. He was gathering the scribes, the Roman guards, and they were now preparing themselves in the background capture Jesus Jesus was not caught off guard by any of this he he knew this and so he goes as a willing lamb to the slaughter for us if you remember again from last week he had to do this he had to do this because God being holy being just sin had to be punished and if divine judgment was to pass over us And our sins, it had to fall on a substitute, on a lamb. The lamb had to be slain so that we might be covered by the blood. And now today we approach Gethsemane. And as we approach Gethsemane, we must do so with silent reverence. This is a painful passage of scripture to read. Because it's here in a very real sense that the initial smiting, the initial punishment of our Lord starts taking place. He had been the curse bearer all throughout the days of his humiliation. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But now we see he's becoming overwhelmed by the curse as he's faced with it head on at Gethsemane. He's standing before the mouth of the furnace of God's wrath. And he has to step in for us. I want you to imagine, if you will, every little sin you've ever committed. Imagine every little sin you've ever committed as just a single droplet condensed into a great and terrible cup. And then imagine all the sins of all the people of God throughout all time as a little droplet put in that cup. And Christ, the shepherd, has to drain it dry. He drains it out of obedience to his Father, but I want you to see this today. He drains it because of His great love for us. Three things to see from our king in Gethsemane. The first is his great agony over sin. The second thing to see is his great love for his people. And the third is his great victory over his enemies. Let's read together. This is Mark 14, 27, all the way through 52. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's sort of a weird place to stop. But we were going to address it really quick, because if I don't address that ending part, you're going to sit here and wonder the whole time, who is the naked guy? (laughs) There's two options very quickly. First option is it's a local youth who had heard the commotion, lived nearby, and went out to see what was going on. He was hiding. The guards saw him. They thought he was with Jesus. They tried to grab him, and he runs off in his birthday suit. That's the first option. The second option, and I think the one that's more likely, is this is John Mark. This is the cousin of Barnabas. This is the guy who's writing the gospel for Peter. And the reason I think that makes sense is if you go to John's gospel, John doesn't mention himself. He talks about the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't include his own name in the story. And so I think this little incident happened. John Mark wanted to record it. It's not in Matthew, Luke, or John, but here it is in Mark, John Mark's book. So we don't know. We ultimately don't know. And if God wanted us to know who the naked guy was, he would have told us. Uh, But what I do want us to see just from that little ending part before we go back is This is how Mark is. Mark is very intent on the cross. And so even from the very beginning of Mark, we are going headlong for the cross. He wants us to get to the cross. And so he's very brief on certain things. He's consistently to the point. But on the things that are, are very important to us, the details that are not omitted, always very plain. Always with great clarity. So I start at the end to take us to the beginning. That's, that's how Mark is. So now you won't have to sit there and wonder about that guy the whole time. Starting in verse 27, listen to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus stops to prepare them for what awaits. This is happening, this smiting, this scattering. This is going to take place. This is the keynote of the entire passage. It's a start and it's really the end. Notice the shepherd will be struck. And then in verse 50, what does it say? And they all left him and fled. It's exactly what Jesus says. The sheep will be scattered. And so Jesus is doing something wonderful. He's telling them in advance so that when they look back, when Mark writes this, when they think back, they go, Jesus knew this was going to happen. The shepherd must be smitten. That was part of the plan. He must die as the substitute. The disciples would be scattered because of his capture. That was part of the plan as well. You see, God's in control. There's no plan B. This was always the plan A. And so it's not really Jesus rebuking his disciples. He's merely telling them a fact. This is Zechariah 13, 7. He's quoting from the prophecy. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, tonight, this is exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled. Now, the interesting thing about that prophecy from Zechariah is who is the one who does the smiting? Who is the one who is striking the shepherd? It's Jehovah. It's God. This is why the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to a world who sees this and goes, this is so dumb. God kills his own son to save him from himself, from his own wrath. His son has to die to save. That makes no sense. That's stupid. But the reply is, then who should be punished instead? (laughs) You? Well, no, 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 not me. Well, okay then. You see, we all want mercy, but we shrink at this idea of justice. Justice. We like justice for the bad people, those people that are, you know, really bad. Those people, you know, I'm talking about, but not for us. We're the good people. And so we want what's fair, right? That's not fair. Well, no, it's not fair that Jesus had to die for us. You're right. It's not fair. He didn't do anything to deserve that. It had to be justice. He was getting the justice we deserved. And that's because deep down, again, if I'm talking about myself, I really don't think I'm as rotten as I am. At the end of the day, I, you know, I go home and I think, you know, Heath, you're actually a pretty good guy. <laughs> you're not as bad as you say you are, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Pat myself on the back. My good will just be good enough. Right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. This is why this passage is so important. I need to see Jesus in agony. I have to see Jesus in agony, the Son of Man, crawling on the ground in prayer because my sin is so bad. And when he looks at my sin and what he has to do to pay for it, I have to see what Jesus did for me on the cross. You see, I I couldn't have drank even an ounce of that cup. Only the God-man, perfectly sinless, overflowing with love for his sheep, Perfectly in communion with his Father could do what had to be done. So yeah, it's not fair. It's not fair that one man should die for all of our sins. But because the Father loves us, he sends his Son, and the Son, out of love, comes to die for his bride. Now listen again to Zachariah. I want you to hear the language. This is the NIV. It says, Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. Here's another translation. The man who is my partner, the man who is my companion, the man that is my fellow. You see, this is the thing that that, that the world can't understand, that we have so much trouble as well understanding. This is not an angry God, an angry father punishing his son to assuage his rage. It's instead a gracious God knowing that justice has to be done and we couldn't pay for it. And so he works in tandem with his son. And he says, if we're going to bring about the redemption of the people, if we're going to bring about the justification, we have to do it. God satisfies the demand of justice and we get unmerited grace. That's the good news of the gospel. You see, the smiting here is to be endured in fellowship with the father. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus is going to the cross because of God's unchangeable, unfailing, unmerited love and compassion towards us, towards his people. It was the father who spared not even his own son for us. You see, the father loves you. The father loves you. It's so important to note that Jesus, all throughout the gospels, he always links the mystery of his passion, the mystery of the cross with the power that's going to result from his work. And so he illuminates the darkness. He says, it's coming up. I'm going to be smitten. I'm going to be struck down. But he follows it up with resurrection light. Verse 28. But after I am raised up. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind about what's coming. After, yeah, after that, after I'm struck down, I'll be raised up. And then I'm going before you. I'm going to go before you into Galilee. I'm going to go before you into heaven. I'm going to prepare a place For you, that you might be with me always. So, the smiting, the cross, the justice of God towards sin, you see, this was the path to victory. It's such a reverse way of thinking. The same is true for all of us in God's kingdom, for all believers. By dying, we do what? We live. Through loss, we gain. By being last, we're first. It's an upside down kingdom. You'll remember the rebuke, and I think believes in the book of Acts. These disciples are turning the world upside down. (laughs) They've got to stop doing that. They're breaking our justice. They're breaking our rule system. That's not how it works. The kingdom of God turns the value system of the world upside down. And so when we bear our crosses, we do it in light of Christ's resurrection power. There's a guy named Thomas Kelly. He wrote a beautiful hymn back in 1804 about this passage. It was called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Here's what one of the verses says. He says, Tell me as you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, fo- foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would intervene to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. So Christ took the justice we deserved that we might receive mercy and grace. Let's leave with the disciples. We're gonna pass from the upper room. Our bellies are full, our hearts are glad. We've sung together. We're a bit perplexed at Jesus's words. Who's the betrayer? We're not sure what's going on. We can see little disciples walking through the streets that darkened night as they head towards Olivet. We know from John, it's cold. In the courtyard the chief priests have a little fire to warm themselves so it's a cold dark night and soon enough they come to the brook of Kidron. And if you know about the brook of Kidron in the in the Old Testament this is the same brook where King David long ago fled from Absalom his son. He fled from his betrayer. But we have great David's greater son Jesus who goes towards those who would betray him, towards his enemies. He does not flee he goes to approach the garden. Let's do it now. Let's approach with awe and wonder. He leaves eight disciples behind. He's taking Peter, James, and John to be with him. This is verse 34. And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, at the beginning, I believe I said it was a little uncomfortable to read this passage. This is a different side of Jesus than we're used to seeing. I don't blame you if you read it and you go, what's happening here? This is the son of God in great distress. He's filled with horror at what he must now face. You see all the crashing waves, all those waves of our sin, of God's wrath are about to flood his soul. And if only the foresight of the cup is this dreadful, how dreadful will the cup be itself? Every murder, lie, theft, evil thought, evil deed, every single sin committed by God's people laid out before him like a blanket. And he knows that on the cross he will be wrapped in it and made a curse for us. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards is so helpful. He says this, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ in his original nature was infinitely above all suffering, for he was indeed God over all, blessed forevermore. But when he became man, he was not only capable of suffering, but partook of that nature that is remarkably feeble and exposed to suffering. Translation, Jesus became really a man. 100% man, 100% God. He took on flesh. As the writer of Hebrews says, he humbled himself, emptied himself, took on flesh, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A sinner's death, a thief's death. He became man in order that he might redeem mankind. In Luke 22, 44, we're told that Jesus is in such agony and anguish. His sweat is like drops of blood. What he was experiencing in Gethsemane was never experienced before by anyone Ever. Now, the great conflict in, in Jesus' soul did not arise out of some sort of fear of death, right? He, he knew what was going to happen. He was going to be resurrected. It wasn't even fear of physical pain. The agony in Gethsemane, and I, and I have to drive this home, it was the agony of bearing our sin. He was our substitute. Again, listen to Jonathan Edwards. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was without a doubt the same with which his mouth was so full of. It was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup. This was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and standing and viewing its raging flames, seeing the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Listen to what Jesus says, the prayer of our shepherd in the garden. Verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's a Bible professor, Bruce Waltke, he was telling a story one time of His daughter's trip to the doctor. His daughter had had such a bad case of strep throat that it was severe enough that it required a shot to get her back to to good health. She was frightened and she cried the whole time. No, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy. But all the while, she gripped me tightly around the neck. Do you hear Jesus? Abba, Father, Father. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' arms never left the Father's neck. Gethsemane is what perfect communion with God looks like. This is all of us, the soul crying out to God, Lord, I am shrinking in the face of this. I am weakened by this illness. I am in pain and agony over this loss. Daddy, no. Daddy, no. No. But then you wrap your arms around your father's neck. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you, Father. I trust you. This shot will be the cure. This pain will break away. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is showing us how communion with God is supposed to play out. It's being willing to stand before the mouth of the furnace and say, Yes, Lord. I will enter if that's what you want. Friends, the good news is if Christ did not suffer everything we deserve on that cross, and I mean really, truly suffer it, then whatever ounce he missed, you have to pay for. But he took care of it, didn't he? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Romans 5, 7 through 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now do you hear the cry from the cross? Jesus is there the burden of all our sin. He has paid for it, and he yells out, It is finished. Father, I drank the cup. Not one drop remains for heath toss. Father, I've extinguished the furnace of wrath with my own blood. Father, it has been paid. My people are free. My bride is washed white. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Amen. And what's our response? Why? (laughs) Why? Me? You? Wrath, condemnation, judgment, these are what I am owed by God. Why would he save a wretch like me? And I'll tell you why. I don't understand it. These are the words from the Jesus storybook Bible, the little little Bible my children read. It was because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for us. (laughs) John in his gospel, John 13, one now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the very end. He never stopped loving us sinner he loves you today he loves sinners it's remarkable let's turn to that now the great love of Christ towards his people this is verse 37 and he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter Simon are you asleep could you not watch one hour watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and again he went away and prayed saying the same words And again he came in and found them sleeping For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, "Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hours come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners." The first thing I want us to notice about the love of Christ towards us is our weakness. He loves us in our weakness. He became man. He he really felt what we felt. He knows what it feels like to hurt, to have heartache, to have sorrow, to have illness and pain. He was man. And so he has patience with us in our weakness. At the start of the passage we saw, Jesus warns them about their coming weakness. You will scatter. This will happen. You will see me get struck and you will scatter. And Peter, good old Peter, even though they all fall away, Jesus, I'm your guy. I'll be with you. In Matthew, Peter says, I will never become untrue. I love that. I'll never become untrue. And Jesus says, not only will you become untrue once, you're going to do it three times before the night's over. Oh, Peter. (laughs) Here's the remarkable thing about the way Christ loves us. He did not expect these men in their frailty, in their sorrow, in their tiredness to be able to fellowship with him in that garden. He told them earlier, are you able to drink the same cup I'm able to drink? No. He knew about their weakness. Beloved, he knows about your weaknesses. He had perfect knowledge of their capacity. He has perfect knowledge of our capacity. And yet he has endless compassion for us. This is why he's going to the cross in the first place. He has to pay for our weakness, for our inability, for our disobedience. And because he knows that, he can look at Peter and go, just you wait till I come back. I'm coming back for you. Secondly, he prepared these men for running away. Isn't that truly remarkable? He prepared and warned Peter. He said, Peter, here's what's going to happen. You're going to deny me. After you do, I'm coming back for you. It's okay. I love you. The one who prepares his sheep for danger. This is the good shepherd. He takes our declaration of our failure and he ties it with his declaration of power. He says, it's okay. I've covered your sins. I've got you taken care of. In spite of the feebleness that lurks within every human heart and the weakness that will cause you, Peter, to deny me, I will be with you and love you to the end. You're all going to scatter. I will keep on loving you thirdly his love shines forth in just waves of beauty as we observe his patience this is something that i just i think about all the time how patient god has been with me in my life Uh, how many times i've denied him how many times i've just been a fool And and yet he's so patient with me verse 37 simon are you asleep could you not watch one hour I hear so many people that read this like Jesus is just so angry here. He's just so mad and angry with his disciples. I don't think it's a rebuke. I think it's a reminder. He he told them what was going to happen. And so he's reminding Peter, Peter, you were so self-assured, weren't you? But I told you this was going to happen. Peter, this will happen and I still love you. And then look at how quick he is to come up with an excuse for them. The Spirit indeed is willing. But the flesh is weak. Oh, I know. I know, brothers. I understand exactly how weak the flesh is. I know. He's so gentle with us in our weakness. Peter, are you sleeping? Oh, my rock man. Weren't you just boasting about how you'd go with me to death and to prison? He's so gentle with his sheep. He's so patient with me, with us. The fourth thing to see is his loving care for his sheep. I just, I love this. Again, this is so, this is all about how you, how you read the text because it's so important to see it. This is uh, one of the few times I think the KGV, the King James version gets it right. Listen to this 41 and he cometh the third time and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. It's enough. The hours come behold, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In 1441, Gethsemane, the struggle is over. Jesus has gained peace through his prayers with his father. We're told in Luke that an angel has come and strengthened him. And so when he returns the third time, he catches them sleeping. And I don't think he scolds them. I think he does what any loving parent does. He goes, hey, you still sleeping? Sleep on. Take your rest. And when you, when you see that, is there anything more beautiful than Jesus watching his disciples sleep in Gethsemane? They couldn't stay up, but he could. They couldn't watch, but he would watch them. They couldn't pray, so he prayed for them. They would leave him, he would never leave them. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. The fifth and final thing, we're moving quickly here is Christ's wonderful strength of love towards sinners. He's placed at the mouth of the furnace. Why? Because of his enemies, because of us. Edwards, again, finally, he writes this, the heart of Christ was so filled with distress, and yet it was greater filled with love for vile worms. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, But this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world. It would overwhelm the highest mountains of sins. Those great drops of blood that fell to the ground were a manifestation of the ocean of love in Christ's heart. Does Jesus love you? Oh, you have no clue. Do you? You have no clue. I have no clue. And then the bitter portion from God, the cup of wrath is set before him. And he saw what he had to drink. He saw my sin. He saw your sin. And he thought, if I will persist in my love towards sinners, I'm going to have to take this cup. Jesus, will you drink it? Will you drink it for them? Not for the best, for the worst. Lord, for me. They perish or you perish in their place. Which one will it be? Son of man, how great is your love? Was there any prayer ever that manifested such love towards enemies as the cries and tears of our Lord that night? The blood sweat being poured out of agony. It was the same blood which he knew would save the souls of his own foes, of those who were far off, of the strangers and aliens who he was calling home. All of us who he was calling out of, out of darkness into light pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. And so this is Christ in Gethsemane. And I want those who love him to learn how to imitate him. I want us to look and go, Lord, how do we become more like you? Sooner or later, maybe some of you have already done it, you'll face a Gethsemane in your own life. It's going to be that garden where you have often placed your greatest comfort as well as the location of your greatest need. And you will go there and you will pour out your heart to the Father and you will face the heat of the furnace and you will pray as true followers ought to pray. You'll say, not my will, but your will be done. I want you to come out victorious like Christ did. Very, very quickly applications here. First thing is, and this is simple, we must be people who pray. (laughs) <laughs> how, how, how silly is that, that I'm telling Christians, hey, we should pray. <laughs> we should pray. And I have to say that because I have to be reminded we, we should pray. What a great resource we have at our fingertips. Think about the disciples. Imagine the prayer meeting they might have had that night if they could have just kept their eyes open. They could have prayed for each other. They could have prayed for, for Jesus. They could have prayed about the coming trial that they knew was coming. They, they had a wonderful opportunity to cling to their God, and they missed it. And I wonder how many times I've missed that treasure because of my own laziness and my own sleepy attitude. Do not neglect it. Secondly, when we do pray, we must approach God as our Father. Jesus gives us an example. He's praying. He's wrestling with God. He's wrapping his arms around the Father. He's holding so tight, saying, No, Father, Abba, Father, please. In our times of trouble, This is our first and last resort, it's prayer. When the sun shines brightest, when midnight darkness is around us, let's pray. We are children of the King. There are so many precious people here today that are hurting so much. I know you're hurting, you don't have to say it. I know your face is downcast for a reason. I know there are people in this room who are struggling with depression. I know there are those in this room who are overwhelmed with grief over the loss of a loved one. God in his grace through his Holy Spirit invites you today. He's saying, I'm going to give you the strength. I want to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the strength, the words to pray. Lord, give us the power to pray. Give us the power to pray with intensity, to pray with earnest, even unto agony, up to tears. He says, come to me. Come to me, I want to hear you, I love you, I care for you, I want to hear from my children. And the last thing we have to pray for, and this is the hardest one I think, is we have to pray for our enemies. When you feel that ache of bitterness in your heart, that contempt for someone welling up, it could be your spouse, it could be your own children, your boss, co-workers, it could be yourself your own hatred for your own self. If you would dare to claim the forgiveness of Christ and yet somehow hold hate in your heart towards another person, you presume too much. And so you have to let it go. Come to the cross and let it go. Let it go. Let go of that hate like Jesus. Jesus, Jesus died for his enemies. Final point. Today, very quickly, I just want us to see Christ's victory. Jesus is in the garden because that's where he's going to have victory, right? He goes, listen listen to verse 42. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer at hand. It's not, rise quickly, we have to go, we have to flee, let's run, everybody pack your stuff. Judas is coming. He says, let's go meet him. I'm going to go talk to him. And he goes willingly because... He is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for us. And so he goes victoriously. Christ's courage is evident in the fact that he goes to the exact place where Judas knew he was going to be. He could have gone anywhere else but Gethsemane, but he goes there. Here's what I want us to leave with. Because Christ was victorious in his darkest hour of the soul, you can have assurance today that he'll be with you in yours. You will not have merely an angel to strengthen you. You will have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords at your bedside. When you're in the furnace of life's trials, there will be another in the flames with you. Because he lives, because he fought and won, because it is finished we might sleep in peace while our master watches over us. And when your Gethsemane comes, which it will, Jesus will be with you. I'm sad to say that most of this sermon does not belong to you unless you belong to Jesus. And that's my prayer every week, is that you would. I don't want you to slumber, awake, Arise, O sleeper, awake. Let Christ's light shine upon you. Friends, you're going to have sorrow. You're going to face death. You're going to have illness. You're going to have tragedy. And you're going to have to drink the cup. What will you do when that comes? Who will you cling to? Whose arms will you wrap yourself around? When you walk into the valley of the shadow of death, will there be a shepherd to guide you? Seek him. Seek him today. Today's the day. Today's the day. It was it was yesterday, but today works. Go to him. His arms are open. Why he loves you. You've seen how he loves you. He did it for you. He loves sinners. I I don't know how else to say it. He loves sinners, and he loves you. And you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all in the same boat together, and that's great news for me. And I want it to be good great news for you to do today too. Let's pray.